Okay, so Ecclesiastes, if you'll turn there, chapter 1. We return here. I was out uh, uh, two weeks ago um, filling in for Shane. He was on the road down at the graduation for the Expositor Seminary. Uh, We have one student graduating, our first student graduating from the seminary, uh, Brian Mullet. And so Shane traveled down with Brian and his family uh, down to Jupiter, Florida for that. And then tonight uh, we'll actually have a graduation uh, service uh, for our evening service tonight. I think Shane will still be in the pulpit Uh, But we'll be recognizing Brian Mullet. We've got, I think, a couple of visitors, at least one visitor up, uh, Bob Whitney from the Expositor Seminary. So um, looking forward to to that. So we had that going on and then our special service last week with no no Bible study. So it's good to get back to to the study of Ecclesiastes, um, a a book and a message, uh, we said, given to us uh, by King Solomon, uh, who also penned, as we mentioned, uh, many of the Proverbs. Uh, in fact, uh, bo- both of these uh, works, uh, Ecclesiastes and, and the book of Proverbs, both of them designed to, to give us wisdom about life in this world uh, and how to, to navigate, uh, navigate life. But they kind of accomplish this, accomplish this goal in, in, some, in some different ways. We might say that Proverbs focuses maybe more on the, the norms uh, or the, the rules uh, Proverbs are essentially wise, uh, wise principles uh, in a concise form, uh, in a form that is stated in a way that's it's easy to understand and, and easy to, to remember. Uh, we could list a number of them just to uh, give you examples of that, uh, just how, how uh, these things sort of stick with us, not only their, their meaning, but just, just the ability for us to even recall them time and time again. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord uh, with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for, it, for from it flows the springs or the issues of life. Uh, Proverbs 14.12, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Death. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of, of an enemy. Right. So Proverbs sort of focuses on those, if you will, norms and, and rules of, of life. And we might say in, in contrast to that, that Ecclesiastes focuses more on the exceptions, um, which many of us hate. We hate the exceptions, Right. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of like, uh, a, a, uh, like a child learning how to, to spell in English. And so they learn this, this very basic uh, guideline and rule uh, very early on that I comes before E, uh, like in the word believe or, or grieve, and, and they get that down, right? They're sort of like, this is, this is easy stuff. I mean, I can remember that. And then just about the time that they get really comfortable with that rule, then the teacher starts to say, okay, well, now there's some exceptions to that, and they start to give these various exceptions to that general rule, and so it ends up becoming I before E except after C, and sometimes Y, and in words that sound like A, such as neighbor and way. And so people that don't like exceptions struggle. I mean, they're going to struggle for sure with language. Uh, Every language is this way. Um, Sometimes there's so many exceptions that it makes you wonder why we even have 
these rules, right? Like, why even teach us this rule and then give us the exceptions? Just, just teach us everything together. Don't tell us it's a rule, a general rule of thumb. Just say, this is just the way that it is. And at some point, sometimes in, in language classes, a teacher, after saying so many times over and over again, okay, another exception, another exception, another exception, they just eventually just say, this, that they just say, this is just the way to do. You just need to memorize this. Okay, you just need to memorize all these things and so that, that can become very, very frustrating, and, and, and life is the same way. Um, Proverbs teaches us a number of principles, but then what we find is that a lot of times those principles don't, in, in real-life situations, don't seem to be playing out the way that we expected. For instance, Proverbs 13.21 says, Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. So... We get this sort of general axiom, this general truth that if you are a sinner, a wicked man, a wicked woman, that, that adversity is going to pursue you. Um, but if you live godly and if you live wisely and if you live righteously and make God-honoring decisions, then you're going to be rewarded with prosperity. <clears throat> now, we're all guilty of this, right? We take the term adversity and we define that, right? I mean, in our own minds... We, we think about what does it mean to be in adversity, and then we do the same thing with this issue of prosperity, right? So we, in our minds, we can picture that, we have a picture of what prosperity looks like. And so we, we cling to a general, perhaps general principle like this one in Proverbs thirteen twenty one, and it's in light of a principle like that that we see Job's friends. Job's friends seem to be justified in their assessment of Job's condition, uh, that because of all of Job's uh, calamity, all the calamity that came upon Job in his life, that there must have been something in Job's life for him to repent of, right? Uh, in other words, his friends were simple, simply operating by those proverbial principles and saying, well, listen, if, if, if adversity pursues sinners, then Job must be a sinner that needs to repent. And yet we, we know that Job was a, was a righteous and godly man. So... Uh, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us of some of these, we might call them exceptions under the sun, exceptions in, in this life. For instance, in Ecclesiastes 7.15, he says, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. So it's like, okay, what about Proverbs 13.21? Well, Proverbs 13.21 is, is true in a general sense. And yet Ecclesiastes says, but there are exceptions. There are exceptions. There are exceptions. There are, there are times when those who are wicked live a long life. And there are times when those who are God-honoring and God-pleasing in their lives have their life, from our perspective, uh, cut short. So the problem with Job's friends was that Job's experience did not correspond to the standard categories, and therefore they misapplied true things and in the end ended up hurt, hurting their neighbor rather than, than loving, uh, loving him. Uh, Jack Eswine in his, uh, his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this. He says, quote, We would be remiss, however, if we thought of this preacher, Solomon, as one dealing in exceptions and contradictions. On the contrary, Ecclesiastes teaches us plenty of norms... But most of these norms are of a different kind. More often than not, these norms have to do not with didactic principles, but with the kinds of circumstances and situations or seasons 
that one must navigate under the sun. If Proverbs is like math, mostly dealing in equations in which one thing adds up to equal another, then Ecclesiastes is like music, all mood and melody and tone. If Proverbs is like meteorology, giving us indicators so as to predict certain outcomes, then Ecclesiastes is like the actual weather, fickle and unpredictable in its ability to rant with storms or breathe easy with a mid-morning breeze. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. In Proverbs, wisdom gives us eyes to recognize the storm clouds and what to do in response. In Ecclesiastes, death is a piece of tornado from which no proverbial basement can shelter us. Uh, we mentioned, and this sort of plays into this, just, we mentioned in our discussions in previous weeks how, how challenging this makes. It, it's cha- Ecclesiastes is a challenging book to interpret. It's a challenging book to, to understand, and, and part of that difficulty is simply our, our lack of familiarity with, uh, in general with, with this kind of literature, this kind of wisdom literature. Uh, another in- interesting thing about Ecclesiastes is that you can sit and listen to this, this preacher, Solomon, and, and even without any knowledge of the Bible, you can still feel that he is using your language to speak about things that you yourselves know. Uh, interesting, there's, there's no mention. We already, we already made the point that there's no mention of, of the, uh, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in, in this book. Uh, there's all, also there's no uh, mention of some of the great uh, themes of biblical history, such as the Exodus, the conquest of the land, uh, God's role as deliverer or lawgiver, uh, or even for that matter, in any of really God's redemptive acts. Uh, in fact, Solomon seems to emphasize that sort of creaturely aspect of his life, that creatureliness, creatureliness. How about that? There's always a word that's going to hang me up. If it's not perspicuity, it's creatureliness. Those of you who've been here for a while, if you don't get that, then that's okay. Uh, Creatureliness, uh, rather than redemption, in other words, rather than focusing on God's redemptive work, he seems to focus more on on humanity. It's more, more of an emphasis on his own humanity than it is his, his faith. Solomon begins with the truth that all of us are in the world, no matter who we are, and that all of us have this one thing in common, that we are human, and as such, we must commonly navigate this same maddening world, and yet God-governed world together. And so, in that way, he recovers a sense of our common humanity. If you want to look at it this way, Ecclesiastes can really help you in your evangelism because it's one of those books that, that I, it identifies with everybody. Like I said, you, don't, you can be talking to a person that has absolutely no understanding of biblical truth and you can take them to the book of Ecclesiastes and things in that book will resonate with them. They'll, they'll, they'll understand the things that you're, you're talking about. So we... We find this emphasis on our common humanity. We are all those who live, as he says, uses this phrase, phrase many times, under the sun, which just simply means we, we are those who live outside of the Garden of Eden. We are, we are those who live on this side of Genesis 3. 
and yet also those who live this side of eternity and this side of, of heaven. Which, by the way, drives us back to God's original design uh, in the very beginning. Life, life in the garden before the fall. And what we find is that God, God created man. Uh, God gave man a number of things. God gave man a home. He gave him a place to, to dwell. He gave him um, a family. Or we might say God gave Adam uh, someone to enjoy life with. He gave Adam and Eve food. He gave them a sustenance to cultivate. He gave him work and a meaningful thing to do. And all of these good gifts, and this will be one of the things that Solomon emphasizes throughout Ecclesiastes, is that all of these, all of these gifts from God remain for us to, uh, to find joy in, to, to enjoy in life. In, in other words, we might say this, these things are not the problem. Uh, our homes and our families and our friends and our work and our food, those are not the problem. Uh, it is our use of those things that is the problem. So those things aren't bad. The reason we know they're not bad is because God gave them to Adam in a, in a perfect world. I mean, this was a part of his original design, and yet because of sin, man has twisted and manipulated these things. As Romans 1 says, man has failed to give thanks to the Creator and worship God, and in turn, uh, he is, in, 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 rather than doing that, he, is, he has made the choice to, to worship what God has created rather than to worship God Himself, to put our trust in those things, uh, to look to those things for satisfaction, uh, trying to use those things for a gain that they cannot and were never intended to provide. So this is, this is one of the points that Solomon makes, that only God himself can satisfy our, our souls. And, and this has been true from the very start. Adam and Eve were given a place and food and work and each other, but they were always meant to, to walk with God, and he was always meant to be the one ultimately that would satisfy their, their hearts. And this is our greatest need. This is still our greatest need. To walk with God, to be dependent on God, and to believe that God is enough and that He has done enough for us. That no- nothing else, nothing else will, will satisfy. And, and some people will disagree with that. Uh, you, will, you will encounter people that, will, uh, that may claim, you know, they'll, they'll say things like, you know, listen, I, I have found that. I, ha- I have found satisfaction in other things. Uh, I have found satisfaction in it, whatever it is. I have found satisfaction in him. I have found satisfaction in her. I have found satisfaction in, in me. Um, but it's, it's like, it's thinking it reminds me of um, juicy fruit gum. Some of you don't even know what that is, right? I, I, sometimes it's, you, men, you mention certain things and certain people just, they, they check out mentally because it's just not, it's not in their, something that they experienced. Other, for other people, it's like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, juicy fruit gum. It was one of my favorite gums. My my uh, my grandmother's here this morning, and uh, this is one of those things. You know, we would uh, we would go to church uh, with her occasionally when I was a young young boy, and uh, we had big red. That was the best. Big red and juicy fruit gum. I mean, those were the two that were, at least in my life, were were, were awesome. Uh, except for the fact that juicy fruit gum and big red gum, 
the flavor lasts for about 60 seconds. It's that initial, you put it in your mouth, and it's like, man, this is fantastic. But juicy fruit, especially juicy fruit, 60 seconds, and you have to spit it out. You have to spit it out and get a new piece. It just, it just does not, that, that sense of satisfaction, that sense of, of pleasure and joy, whatever you want to call it, very, very, very short-lived. So that's, that's, an, that's, for those people that say that, for those people that say, I have found satisfaction in something other than God, you just have to know that based on Ecclesiastes, it's, it's like juicy fruit. You know, if there is a taste of satisfaction, it's going to be something that's going to be very short-lived and temporal, and they will continue on their search for something else. They'll, they will have to either um, increase the frequency of what they're doing, or they will have to increase the intensity of what they're doing. They will, they'll never be satisfied with exactly what they have. They're going to have to do what they do more regularly to maintain that satisfaction, or they will have to increase the amount of what they're doing and the intensity of it. You have a comment? Yeah. So there's that restlessness of spirit, uh, inner turmoil. Yeah. No, no yeah. The, the woman at the well is a great example of that, right? I mean, this this whole exchange Jesus has with her. He's the living water. He's the one that can truly satisfy. She's gone from one man to the next man to the next man to the next man to the next man, right? Just never, never, never satisfied. Um, so, yeah. It is. I mean, that's, that's what we see all around us in, in the culture. So I'm just saying, what Ecclesiastes does, I mean, it, it, it puts you on very common ground with anybody. I mean, you can start to talk about those things, and I'm just telling you, you can, you can connect with unbelievers immediately on those kinds of discussions because they, they experience that. They experience these things in their life. Um, and you can use that in your evangelism as, a, as sort of a launching point, I guess, for, for the gospel message. Well, so far we we have worked our way down to verse 12 uh, of chapter 1. Uh, We mentioned the the book opens here with just an an introduction of the author in verse 1, sort of a statement of the theme of the book in in verse 2, and we spent just uh, some some time in detail looking at verse 2. And then last time, this sort of poetic uh, summary in verses 3 to uh, down to verse 11, uh, in in which a series of, of examples... Uh, drawn from nature and from human experience, prove that the world is, as Derek Kidner says, endlessly busy and hopelessly inconclusive. Verse 1, the, world, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. Uh, 
so there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So we, we, we commented on these, on these verses uh, our last time together. We, we summarized uh, some of the things that Solomon is saying. Solomon says essentially here that life is marked by, by drudgery. Uh, uh, life is, is monotonous. Um, uh, life is, we might say, transient, and we and we, we talked about verse two. This this vanity of vanities. We made that comment that this is a term used in the Old Testament. That's uh, it, it can it can mean a number of different things depending on the context. But one of those things is simply the idea that life is passing. Life is uh, short. Uh, it is something that is is transitory. So we we looked at that. In other words, there's this. There's this idea in, in these verses that these things in nature uh, have been going on and continue to go on, and those things are unchanged in contrast to the fact that we are here and we're gone. Uh, our, our life is very short. Uh, the life of, of uh, if you will, those things in creation is, is in comparison very long. Uh, there is this re- repeating a life cycle, uh, this day-to-day routine, uh, cyclical weather patterns, uh, and the fact that our human experience mirrors many of these physical things, uh, redundant activities. Uh, he, he makes the point that, that life is insatiable. It is, it is a, something that, uh, with a huge appetite that can never be satisfied. Uh, life is unoriginal and marked by insignificance and and ultimately, he says here is nothing, nothing is new. So if you think about it, he's just saying our our times, our times fade from memory. Uh, I, I went to a funeral this week, and it's just you know, um, I, I knew the person, I, I, the person that passed away. I've known for for several uh, years. Uh, it was a, a man in his his uh, early eighties. But it's it's just it's amazing that I mean you just think you you leave the church, and the memory of that man fades so so quickly. In fact, the memory of this particular man was really fading already uh, in his his final year uh, of life. And so this is this is this is the way it is. Uh, our times fade from memory. I mean, the, the reality is that most of the people that have been born, we don't know who they are, and even the ones that we that we can think of and, and, and do know, uh, even they uh, in time fade from, from our memories. And yet, he says, the sun, the wind, the streams, and the sea all outlast our individual lifespans. Think about this. Adam and Eve would look up in, and see the same sun that we will look up and look at this afternoon. Same sun. Uh, think about the Jordan River. Uh, the Jordan River outlasted the earthly lives of Abraham and David and Moses and John the Baptist. And if you want to go over to Palestine, <laughs> you can go over there and you can see it today. And that's, that's part of the point that Solomon is making is that, that these things continue on and yet our lives, again, in contrast, are very, very brief. 
So when we die, the sun keeps rising, uh, the, the winds keep blowing. He says everything is tired, everything is old, uh, everything new, as we, we said, is an old thing repeated. So when it comes to, and, and again, Solomon's not saying that we don't invent things, that there's nothing, we never invent something new. He's, he's not really talking about, uh, in a sense, in inventions. He's just simply saying that when it comes to seasons and conditions of life and temptations and longings and sickness and, and romance and forgiveness and laughter and enemies and commitments and crimes... All those things that just go to make up life as we know it, that in those categories, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. And then, of course, death speaks all languages. Psalm 90, verse 10 says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it it is gone and we fly away. So the biggest, the biggest fool in the world and the wisest man both die and for the most part are forgotten. Uh, Solomon says this is, all, this is all you're really left with if you leave God out of life. That's all you're really left with. Um, this monotony and this repetition and this meaninglessness, again... It's what what Solomon is describing is 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 a person's life that's not factoring God into the equation of life. It's just saying, listen, this this is what it is. Um, and we just made the point that this is not pessimistic if you're a believer. I mean, this is not a a, a downer because what Ecclesiastes says to us is not that that because of that monotony and because of that repetition. It's, it's not encouraging us to say, well, then the details of life don't matter. It's actually telling us the opposite, that for the believer, the details of life matter, that, that they matter greatly. Why? Because ultimately, he'll say this, because we're going to stand before God, and we're going to give an account for the details of life. So there's this, 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 this sort of, um, these two truths that will, will kind of, you know, run throughout this, this book, and, and one of those is... That we are to, and this is a scary thought, live without restraint. We're to live without restraint. You say, wait a minute, I, I, I didn't know that we were supposed to live. That doesn't sound like the Christian thing to do, to live without restraint. And it's actually, I think, an encouragement in the book of Ecclesiastes to do that, except that there's this other balancing truth. And that is that you are to live, um, uh, you say, uh, live with a clear conscience. So if you can do those two things, if you can live without restraint, but at the very same time you can live knowing that you can live without regrets, that you can stand before God and give an account and know that he'll evaluate all that you've done and say, well done, a good and faithful servant. That's that balance that we're trying to strike. That's why, that's why in Ecclesiastes, Solomon will say over and over again, enjoy life, enjoy this. In fact, in one place he'll say, follow the impulses of your heart. And again, that just rubs us the wrong way. We're not supposed to follow the impulses of our heart. Well, you are if you also are fearing God. <laughs> so it's, this, it's this, these tensions. And uh, we'll, we'll try to, again, carefully uh, balance those as we go along. So Solomon wants us to believe that evil and good are real. He, he wants us to believe that our sins in secret will be found out. 
He wants us to believe that we will all give an account of our lives to God. That under the sun, with its madness, with its unanswered questions, its exceptions and vain striving, that the whole purpose or the duty of our lives is still God Himself. To know that there is not only life after death, but that there can be life before death. Abundant life before death. So Solomon determines to show us how to find our way amid this, uh, amid the broken sacred of the world. He, he is, in a sense, our tour guide. And not just giving us wonderful information, but as someone who has lived through much of the history. And so uh, in verse 12, we, he begins this sort of a section that we might call it an autobiography. Uh, perhaps to make us aware of his credentials, uh, to say that, that, that he was someone that was qualified to say the things that he's going to say throughout this, this, uh, this book. Um, uh, again, I, I, I made the uh, statement a few weeks ago that uh, as far as a, a, a graduation speech, uh, for those of you who attended maybe a graduation ceremony in the last, last couple of weeks, that's, that Ecclesiastes is like the ultimate graduation speech. I mean, it, it just, it really, it puts a sharp point on the purpose of life, the meaning of life, the priorities that we ought to have in life. Uh, we went to, uh, over at, uh, we were over at, Ch- at Cherokee Christian at our, at our son's graduation, and there was a, a gentleman there that was the, uh, was the guest speaker at that, uh, at that ceremony. And it was interesting because uh, this guy had a lot of credentials. Uh, lots of credentials. In fact, they read his credentials before he spoke just to say, this guy um, is, for him to stand up and to say what he's about to say, he's, he's qualified to do that. Uh, this guy has been around the block a few times. This guy has experienced a lot of things. He's accomplished a lot of things. And, 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 and my dad made the comment, he was, because he was there, he just, this guy had so many accomplishments that the, the list of the uh, uh, credentials was almost as long as his speech. I mean, it really was. It's like these things went on and on and on and on. And yet you're you're just by the time the list is read, you're just like, okay, yeah, I got to hear what this guy has to say. That's sort of like I I think what's going on here is that Solomon in these at the end of this chapter and into chapter two is just going to give us some some sort of credentials or some reasons why he is he's the he is the one that, that that should be able to say what he's going to say. Uh, he, he's the right vehicle for this, for this message. So he says, and you'll notice the transition here in ver- chap- uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he, he goes, tr- transitions to the first person. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under, the, under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked uh, cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind." Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. 
So the, the key to understand this particular section is just simply the, the, the repetition of the word wisdom. Uh, you'll notice he uses it in verse 13. He uses it again in, in verse 16 two times. He mentions it in verse 17 and, is, and in verse 18. So this is about Solomon and his search for uh, what it is that a person gains for, for all his living and working on this planet. Uh, in this case, his pursuit of wisdom. And not necessarily divine wisdom, but human wisdom. The, the very best that human beings have ever thought or said or, or what human beings can learn about the world without any special revelation from God. So Solomon, he, Solomon, he says here basically, he says, I plunged into this pursuit. I plunged into this investigation enthusiastically. Uh, in verse 12, he mentions his, exalta- his exaltation and his position uh, as, as king over Israel, um, which, again, we just pointed out, get, puts him in a place of he's got, he, has, he has power, he has influence, he has the capability of this kind of investigation. He has the capability of searching these matters out uh, like no other. Uh, and we brought up some of these characteristics back a few weeks ago, so I won't won't spend much time there. But in verse 13, you'll notice what he says. He gets actually into describing this, this pursuit in his life. And he says in verse 13, I set my mind to do two things, to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Uh, this term seek means to seek out the root of a matter. Uh, in other words, Solomon Solomon's saying this. He's saying, I, I did not jump to conclusions about what I'm going to say. I spent a lot of time thinking these things through. Um, You might even say like a doctoral uh, candidate working on their dissertation. Solomon's saying, listen, I didn't just throw these things together. I I pursued these things to the nth degree. In fact, uh, I love what uh, Charles uh, Swindoll says here uh, in his book, Living on the Ragged Edge. He says, quote, any person who claims to be academically respected must pay the price and do serious research. So you roll up your sleeves and dig into the libraries. You pursue every possible angle so that your research is thorough. Perhaps you travel and spend two, three, or more years working toward the completion of that dissertation. You are, in terms of this Hebrew word, seeking in your research. Likewise, Solomon said, I decided I would research the roots of those things. And so he began to pursue the origin of them. He began to reason out the outworking of each pursuit, and he made notes on all the results of them as he pursued this study. He stayed at, he stayed at it. He shoved aside all of the affairs of state. He apparently ignored the needs of his own home. He set aside all his religious moorings as he dug into each subject, whether it was passion or pleasure or philosophy or sex or money or some creative project. Whatever, he went after each subject, every, every objective, to find all that he could about them, how they got started, and what were the final results. In this way, his research was thorough. So Solomon's just simply saying, listen, I, I sought these things out. I, I, I determined to get down to the, the root issues of life. But that's not all. Solomon also says that he set his mind to explore, uh, which is just a term that means to to investigate or to examine a subject on all, on all sides. Uh, or we might say this, it's, it's a term for experimentation. So he experimented with things. Uh, he pursued things to the point of actually getting involved in those things. 
He stopped at nothing when he sought to explore by human wisdom all things under the heavens. So there was, there was no limit to his brains because God had given him the gift of wisdom. Uh, there was no limit to his bucks, no limit to his, his uh, financial resources. There were no limitations, no reservations, just extensive uh, and intensive research. I might say a full investigation. So we've already discussed Solomon had, had the gift of wisdom, so he had this wide and extensive view of all that is done under heaven. Uh, as the king of Israel, Solomon would have had all the resources necessary for exper- experimenting with different solutions to see what it was that made life worth living. Uh, at his command, uh, emissaries uh, traveled to the greatest nations of Africa, Europe, and the Far East, searching for answers to life's most perplexing questions, finding out how other wise men and women have dealt with the brevity of life and the certainty of death. And then when all of that information is gathered, Solomon collates all, all his findings and all of his results. And so his, his quest was sincere. Uh, it was something that he determined to do in his own heart and mind. It was, it was comprehensive. Uh, in short, Solomon wanted to know everything about everything under the sun. But in the end, he found that to be a very humbling thing. Uh, and he says, what he says here is that he found this to be a grievous task. Or you might trans- it could be translated a sore travail or just a that's difficult business. It's an exhausting pursuit, an exhausting pursuit from the wealth of his personal observation, from his interviews of men and women of every calling from distant lands, he sought out these matters, and this is his conclusion. Verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. Uh, that, that the good and the profit that any part of this world has to offer is, is vanity. That all of Solomon's wisdom... If that's all there is to go on, Solomon says is, it's vanity, it is a changing puff, it is without substance, it is, it, it is a puzzle. Uh, it is, he uses the phrase here for the first time in the book, striving after wind. He said it's, it's, like, it's like trying to catch the wind. In fact, the term is actually a term that can be used to, to describe commanding something or shepherding something sort of guiding something. You say it's, Im- it's impossible to do it. You, you, can't, you can't master it. You can't master the wind. You can't catch the wind. Uh, we use the phrase in, in, in you know, modern day, we use the, the, the uh, expression, it's like, it's like herding, herding cats. That's, that's similar to what he's saying. Is it this, this is this pursuit of, of meaning, the meaning of life through m- the wisdom of man is just, it's, it's, a, it's a fruitless Thing. It's a meaningless thing. It's a vain thing. It's, it's like herding cats. It's a, it's a problem that calls for a solution greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, we're not saying it calls, it calls for an intervention of God. Uh, he, he gives this, uh, verse 15, this sort of uh, proverb of sorts, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. Uh, in other words, if, if we can't understand the meaning of life, we still have to face up to its hard realities. Um, there are 
There are many things that we wish in life that we could straighten out, uh, but can't. Uh, we can't always straighten things that are that are crooked. Uh, arguments at home, conflicts in the church, wrongs done in the workplace, financial troubles, uh, physical disabilities. There's there's always something that we wish that we could bend back into shape, but some of our circumstances simply cannot be corrected. Uh, not everything can be changed, especially the past. Uh, God does not change our past. Um, although he does alter the way that the that, that past affects us in our lives. But Solomon's just saying, listen, some, some of these things don't change. Life, you might say this way, life doesn't, and based on the end of this, ver, this verse, you say, life doesn't always add up. It just doesn't always add up. Uh, life is what it is, and there is nothing that we can do to fix it. Uh, there are people that we cannot manage. There are problems that we cannot solve. There are longings that can never be satisfied. Again, as long as we're looking at just life under, under the sun, right? Not, not, not thinking about the Lord or factoring Him into to our lives. Life is like an account that refuses to balance. Uh, we can tell that something is missing, but we cannot figure out what it is. And human wisdom, Solomon says, cannot solve that dilemma. Human wisdom will never solve that dilemma. Uh, Solomon doesn't quite give up, though. Uh, Verse 16, he says, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I, I realize that this also is striving after when... Uh, in other words, what Solomon's saying here is, uh, I've been there and I've done that. I've been there and I've done that. Uh, so beyond Solomon simply, if you will, in researching this, these issues, uh, investigating these issues, uh, questioning people about these issues, and pooling all that information together, he says, listen, I actually got... I got involved in these things, um, and when I say these things, I'm not talking about just uh, those things that we might consider to be noble or, or wise or good. He says that, you know, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, to experience madness and folly, which is simply the, the absurd, the, the opposite of wisdom. So he pondered folly as well as wisdom, hoping to allow the the con, allow contraries contraries to explain each other. Uh, but rather than bringing re- relief to the question of profit, it only increased grief in his life. It only increased grief. Now he'll go more into this in chapter two. We'll see this unfold more in chapter two. This sort of experiential thing. He's just saying, listen, I, this was this was not just something I got out of a textbook. This is something that I actually went out and practiced. I experimented and, and, and I was involved in the experiments myself. And so we see this in Kings. We've already looked at that, 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 that the life of Solomon and, and how many ways in which Solomon, he went out and he tried these various things. He experimented with a number of things. He pursued the meaning of life through 
relationships and through materialism and through knowledge and, and all these kinds of things that people today all around us are, are trying to find satisfaction in. But in the end, he says it only increased his grief. These advantages did not enable Solomon to find all the answers that he was seeking. In fact, his great wisdom only added to his difficulties. He says in verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. We might say that the more that you understand, the more that you ache. The wiser you are, the more worries you have. Uh, Or the more that you know, the more it hurts. He says, in, in much wisdom there is much grief, which could be translated vexation or um, irritation or a frustration of the soul uh, verging on anger, which is what we see, right? I mean, we, we see this in people's lives all the time. This, this frustration, again, is they, they try to live life apart from the saving work of God in their life without, without God's revelation in their life. They're trying to figure out life on their own. And what you see are people that have end up with with more questions than they, than they have uh, answers. Um, uh, emptiness at the end of those pursuits. And, and it's not uncommon to find people with a frustration of soul verging on this, uh, verging on this, this point of anger. Um, what's that? And on, yes, and looking for a way to deal with it. I mean, that's, they're, 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 they're empty, they're frustrated, they're angry, and they're looking for relief. And that's what I'm saying. That's why this book is such a great tool to use in evangelism because it speaks so, it's so relevant. Um, and it's not, just, it's, just not, it's not just in our lifetime. I mean, this has been, this has been the condition of man's heart from, from Genesis 3 on. So the pursuit of wisdom in and of itself is just a matter of books, study, the Internet, and fatigue, on and on. Uh, there's always another work to read, um, and 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 so much of of that of man's attempt to find these answers, it, it ends up going nowhere. In fact, T.S. Eliot said this: "All of our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All of our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. Uh, and those who go through life living on explanations." Uh, will always be unhappy for for a number uh, a number of reasons. One, one of those is that on this the, on this side of heaven there are no explanations for some things that happen. Again, there is this sense of of of, of mystery. There is this sense of you know Solomon is not going to give us all the answers. I mean, in fact, one of one of the answers he's going to give us is that we don't have all the answers, uh, which is going to require us to trust God. So. Some people go through life, they always need an explanation for things. They're going to be unhappy people because uh, on this side of glory, there's not, there, there are no explanations for some things. Uh, and God, another reason is that God has ordained that people live by promises and not explanations. He, he, he has ordained that we live by, by promises and not always explanations. So, for those of you, got a couple of our college students. Where's my son? Where I saw him. Where's he sitting at? Went oh, went out to serve. Went out to serve. Carson, some of these guys, 
you know, I mean, as far as as far as intellectualism, there, there's an interesting book. Shane told me to. I haven't, I haven't gotten into it yet. It's called The Intellectuals. Um, it's a secular book, but it's basically it's a it's a it's a history of some of the most intellectual, you know, some of the brilliant minds in history and how how ungodly these people turned out to be. That that into intellectualism was not, yeah, it, it, it's a dead end. It, without God, it's a dead end. And 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 all that all that. All that uh, intelligence does for sinful man apart from God is just make him more proficient at his, at his sin, sinning and in his rebellion. And that's what you see with a lot of these men that have pursued that kind of life is that in the end, it, it, does, not, it does not end well because these men simply use their intellect to pursue their sinful heart desires. And uh, it's, a, it's amazing. It just chronicles these individuals and the, lot, the, the immorality and the, the ungodliness in, in their lives uh, in general. So what about intellectualism? What, what about intellectual pursuits? I mean, I'm not against the intellect, <laughs> not against the intellect, not against schooling, not against education, academics, none of those things. But, but as far as intellectual pursuits that don't have Christ in the center, where do they lead? It just leads to more confusion. I mean, there's, there's you know, I think about, some of the things my daughter, some of the classes she recently had in the last couple of years at, at, a, at a college level, uh, my son, some of the people that they have to sit under in the in the university, uh, there's no clarity, uh, there's no foundation, there's no there's nothing solid, nothing of substance. It's just just greater and greater confusion. So, you know, a person may look good, they may be bright with great potential, well educated, carrying on a decent life, and all that, but. Uh, we need to be careful concerning intellectual pursuits. Uh, we, we live, we just recognize we live in an information age consumed with more knowledge and new discoveries, but the question is, wh- where is Christ in our searching? Where is Christ in our searching and in our learning? Because He is everything. 1 Corinthians one thirty, Paul said this, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, we'll pick up here next week. We'll get get into, again, this, uh, he gets into some, this was just sort of Solomon's kind of introduction into his credentials, but he's going to really give some explicit examples in chapter 2 of some of those pursuits in his own life, and how each one of those things, he would go down these roads, and then again, what he would find at the end of every one of those streets, uh, every one of those roads was, was a dead end, was something that was not satisfying. And um, he wants us to know that. He's just saying this and this and this and this and this and this don't satisfy. And he's doing that to drive us to the point that there is something and there is someone that does. And so he's, he makes his point in, in, in kind of a, through sort of a, a different route, but still all coming back to the fact that God is the one who has made us and uh, uh, he is enough. He is enough. All right, guys, thank you for your time. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week.